My guest today is the author of A Deal Crash. Here's what some of his colleagues, his colleagues say about him. He's not only an amazing leader, but also a supportive and friendly teammate. Here's another one. He's one of the most people-focused leaders I've ever come across. He's very hands-on and always leads from the front and brings the gravitas to get C-levels on board on the value of customer experience. Here's some more. A great leader, an authentic customer experience star, a solution guru. His unique and thought-provoking style captivates audiences and rewards them with new perspectives on the essential ingredients needed to power transformation, whether in their own organizations or in others that they may experience. Daryl Mason, you're very welcome to the podcast. Yeah, it's been a while, actually, since I saw you in your Oracle days. And I know you spent a lot of time in Oracle. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your leadership experience there. But before we go there, maybe you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up, what sort of experience that was. Yeah, I grew up in, in the English Midlands in Birmingham. And you'll probably get a little bit of a brummy twang every day of the game. Basically, the short story is I went to a big, old, inner-city comprehensive school, hated it, dropped out as soon as I could, zero qualifications, and stumbled into the wonderful world of IT, almost by accident, actually, Paul. Mm. And I remember my first job, actually, was testing computer games on the Sinclair Spectrum, Commodore 64, BBC Micro, Vic 20, all of those things. It just shows my age. So you got paid for playing video games. I got paid for playing Lunar Jetpack on the Spectrum. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Tell me, but, uh, sorry, Dara, just was something you said that I wanted to touch on. You said that you hated school. What was it about school or what was it about your personality that didn't suit the school experience? I think it was, it was a school very low in aspiration and very high discipline. It was, uh, it was basically, it was a typical kind of inner city school at the time, dealing with kind of your poverty, dealing with social problems that you had there on a big housing scheme, big housing estates. And the education was almost fifth or sixth down the list. If you did show any brain cells, you were bullied as well. So you tried to hide all of that stuff. So it was just not a great experience at the time. Things have changed dramatically since then. If you look at the statistics, for example, I think in the early 80s, only about 15% of people went on to university after school. And, uh, and today it's just shy of 50%, I think, in the UK. So there's a huge change in the education system. And I think I'm a late, I've come to learning quite late. I'm a late learner now. I'm really enjoying things. But as I mentioned, I stumbled into, into IT. Test, testing these games and then suddenly the accountant left. The accountant used to run the uh, the IT systems for the company I worked for. They looked around for anybody that knew anything about computers. They, they pointed the finger at me, sent me on a few trading courses and uh, I kind of got into programming without even knowing it really in mm. those days. And that's where my IT career began. And was that programming for computer games or was it more serious like banking? It was more serious. The... We had quite a, I guess, a demanding CEO of the company at the time. And I kept delivering these reports to him and he wanted bigger and better reports, more insightful reports. And I could only do those via programming. I'd exhausted the capabilities of the, the kind of resident pro reporting facilities. So I started writing programs to produce these reports. And just like any reporting, the more you give people, Mm. The more questions he poses about the business, the more they want to know, the more they want to do what-if analyses, that type of stuff. So it just got more and more demanding. He pushed my capabilities. And so not having any qualifications in the early 80s was never a barrier to IT in those days. Because if you went to work for a company as a programmer, they just sat you down and gave you a bunch of tests. Just kind of program that, if you like. And uh, if you could do it, they hired you. Should they not still do that? <laughs> I'm not sure, but I think, I think these days it's much more structured. You'll have your computer sciences degree. It'd be much more of a deliberate, a deliberate endeavor to, to have a career in IT, I guess, these days. Yeah. I just wonder, because I remember I was a programmer for a while and mm -hmm. I went for a job in the Midlands in, in England, Kettering, mm -hmm. I think it was. And uh, oh, wow. the people interviewing me put, 
<laughs> this sheet of paper with a few lines of code on it and said, what's wrong with that? I looked, I, I completely screwed up. <laughs> I, I hadn't a clue. I wasn't God's gift to programming. <laughs> and but in fairness, I thought that's a really good way. And if, if I had zero qualifications, yeah. if I could look at that and go, oh, there you go. You got open bracket here. You've whatever. It's not nested. Whatever it was they were looking for. Yeah. Like if you look at, yeah. I, I know you work for Siebel and I want to talk about that. I don't know about Tom Siebel, but I certainly know yeah. Larry Ellison dropped out of college, Microsoft, Bill Gates, and so many more. I just often wonder how important it is to, to getting a, not to getting, I think it's probably important to getting, but to actually being a successful employee. That's an interesting question because I'm not, because I did drop out of school pretty early on, I'm not religious about, about, about dismissing the great education that people have. And I think when you're young, when you're in your early 20s and you don't have any experience, mm. it shows a propensity for taking on board a lot of information very quickly for problem solving, all of those things that, that you're looking for in talented young staff. I think it's when you're older, I got really frustrated in my late 30s, 40s, when I'd been in the business and I'd proven myself and people still wanted qualifications on your CV, which was good nonsense, right? Yeah. Because if you've actually exercised those skills in the real world, that should be the, the overriding yeah. proof of your capability. Yeah. Nobody uh, wants to know your GCSEs. There was still a lot of com Yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say, nobody wants to know your GCSEs when you're of a certain <laughs> age. It doesn't matter. If I had met you, Darren, when you were 12, 13 years of age, how would I have described you to somebody else? I would say very quiet, introverted youngster. I was an aviation geek, which will probably come on to something we'll talk about a little bit later on. So absolutely loved anything to do with planes. I lived very close to Birmingham Airport or Elmden, as it, as it used to be known as. But I was also really keen on radios. I used to take radios to, to, to bits and put them all back together again. I was a, I was a radio amateur, radio hat, very young in those days, which was in the pre-internet days, that was the only mechanism that you could talk to a stranger the other side of the internet. But for what it's worth, I can still send and receive Morse code at 12 words per minute. Wow. If ever there's a useless skill. <laughs> Someday you might be marooned on a desert island and that will come in handy when you've got a little piece of glass yeah. and a mirror or something and the sun. Exactly, just a flashlight in a desert island. I dream of that. <laughs> 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 I know. I just, I experienced that emotion today. I bought myself a really large power backup unit. It's yeah. like the UK here that's talking about those winter power outages sort of thing. And I saw a lot of my businesses from here. There's not that many things I needed for, but certainly the wireless router and a couple of other things I would need to have that power. So I bought this unit and my wife said to me, Bet you're hoping now that it's going to be a significant power outage so you can boast everybody that you, were, you had the foresight to do this. I thought, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. And the CB language, are you like 10, 10, 20 and what's your handle? And oh, yeah. Started it that. In fact, I earned my pocket money yeah. in those days. People used to come to my front door and they'd knock on my door and they'd ask me by my CB handle. Long before Twitter, by the way, we had CB handles. The, the terminology of the internet is actually decades old, older than that. So yeah. we all had a handle. So yeah. my poor mom used to answer the door and they'd say, it's Boondock Home. And my mom would just get who the hell is Boondock Home? <laughs> That's a really cool <laughs> handle. Moondock. <laughs> and what are, yeah, I used to, I used to think. Yeah. In those, those days, they called it a rig doctor because your radio was a rig. Yeah. But I was a rig doctor. So, yeah, it was, it was a funny days. The funny thing about it is that they, what it does is it highlights the human need to communicate. The fact that you talk nowadays about Twitter, and I was reading an article the other day mm -hmm. about Zoomers and Gen Zers, and the fact that there are certain emojis that were, they used a year ago that they won't use anymore because older generations use them. And there's this language they want to have for themselves. And each group has this. Yeah. Yeah. But also speak to that other requirement just to communicate. And you had that. It's like those pictures on the tube where everybody's looking at their phone, but then they'll show you a picture 40 <laughs> years ago and everybody was just reading their newspaper. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That did the, the old uh, kind of trip. Yeah. Yeah. 
it is fascinating. So then you, you, you did the technical thing and clearly from what you're saying, that was a bent that you had. You were very technical in nature. You're, you're, you're a geek. Let's just call it right. I yeah, say I, that because. I was kind of a geek when, yeah, yeah, I was kind of a geek when it wasn't cool to be a geek. Yeah. yeah. No, I was the same. I'd just love to take things apart for, for just to sake of it. Yeah. Even if I couldn't put it back together again, just to pull a speaker apart just to get the magnets that I'd never use. That yeah. kind of stupid stuff. But <laughs> tell me then how you got in. I, I want <laughs> to, there's, I'm sure there's several steps between that. And then when I met you, I know you were a sales leader in Oracle. Just connect the dots there for me. Yeah. So just very quickly connecting the dots. I was never a kind of God's gift to programming. But at the time, before pre-sales was even a thing, the sales team used to come into the programming room and say, we need somebody to explain how this works to that customer. And they would look around and there was, in, in those days, in the world of programming, there were people that were smoking 20 a day and drinking 17 cups of coffee and had egg stains on their shirts. And then there were guys like me that were never great programmers, but we had some gift for explaining what these programs did to customers. So the sales guys would take you along. And in those days, I was in the, a programming team for something called a 4GL. You, the older people remember a 4GL was a fourth generation language. It was a, one of the first declarative programming languages where you weren't doing sequential code for generation languages like COBOL and BASIC. You were more working with forms and you're filling in forms and defining programs in, in, in that way. That was the, uh, that was the way I started. I started my pre-sales life in, in, in that way. And in pre-sales in those days was pretty industrial, right? You carried no pen projector. Sometimes if you did an on-site demo, you had to carry a server around. You had to, so you had to hire a van. So I drove the van, forklift thing on the back, getting the server off there, commissioning it in the customer's offices, doing the demo, and then driving it back at some ungodly hour of the night. So that, that was pre-sales when I first started out. So it was pretty, pretty brutal. Yeah. It's funny as you're saying that. It's that strong song that says, strumming my pain with your fingers. It was funny just as you said it, because that's it was exactly mirrors my experience. I was programming and then the sales guys would come in and of course they'd look around and they'd want somebody to go and speak with, to a customer. Most programmers would hide behind the desk. <laughs> and I look at, what was that? <laughs> You'll do. Uh, but there was something in it in terms of what the excitement of getting out and being asked questions. You got felt you felt important when you were in front of a prospect. And then, of course, the sales guy would take you out to lunch and you'd wine and dine. It would be always nice from the canteen. It is, yeah. And then I, because of that, I got into pre-sales as well. Same parallel path. But from there to sales, how did that go? So there to sales, I've always been... I've always been a pre-sales leader, first of all, mm. but I just gravitated more and more towards the sales team and sales leaders. Mm. And I loved looking at what good pre-sales, sort of good leaders did, rather good sales leaders. And I, I always tried to align myself with the best sales leaders I could find in each of the businesses that I worked with. I had my wilderness years where mm. I worked for smaller, medium-sized companies where, as you'll be aware, the differentiation between sales and pre-sales was much more gray mm. in smaller organizations. You, there's a lot of crossover there. Mm. When I worked for corporations, that's when I started working in bid management and, and pre-sales management. So, mm. so basically I've been, I've been in or around pre-sales for my whole career, but in later years, much more closely allied towards the sales side of organizations. When you think about the sales leaders you worked with and you think about the great ones and the ones that, not, what were the differences? I think the biggest differences for me were in the areas of knowing what people's job was. And that was coaching when you get to those, uh, those higher levels, especially with first line managers that were just le learning mm. their trade really. And I found that the really good ones understood that their role was coaching rather than just diving in with one or two of the best salespeople in the team and helping them close deals. And that was fine and it worked and it gave them a buzz. And because their fingerprints were on the weapon, so to speak, they got the kudos along with the salespeople for closing those bigger deals, but they didn't leverage their expertise as a great salesperson by coaching their team. And basically you've seen the bell curve of performance in sales teams. 
just moving that curve up as far as they could. So they were just focusing mm. on the worst ones were focusing on the leading edge of the, of that bell curve, because that's where the big sales were happening. And that's where, that's where the kudos was rather than working further down and moving that whole average performance level up. So the best people knew that coaching was their most important job. And the other ones basically didn't, or they outsourced it to another part of the organization or hope that somebody else would do the coaching for them salespeople. So I guess it was that. There, there is a place for modeling good sales behaviors, good sales execution. But if, you, if, you're, if you're leading a team, then, you know, if you dive and spend too much time on one dealer with one sales guy, you're depriving the rest of your team of your talents and your coaching abilities. And I think the number of people that and you will have seen this many times, Paul, in your career, where the best salesperson is on this kind of inevitable curb to sales leadership. And so quite often in those early years, you lose a great salesperson uh, and you gain a mediocre and best leader. And, and unless they have role models in the organization for what great sales leadership looks like, they're floundering for a while, knowing how to come to grips with that. If they hadn't had good mentors themselves, or they hadn't had good pro yeah, hadn't they had good sales mentors to know what great looked like, then you just got the same over and over again. When you think about the organizations who do that transition, break it down for me. What is it that they do to ensure that those skills that they have are transferable and they gain the new skills without having to remake the same old mistakes? I think that the organizations that do it well are the people that prize that moving into sales leadership, especially the first step. And they make sure that those people themselves have good sales mentors that are encouraging the right behaviors. And also what you tend to find as well is the organization knows that you need a good sales governance around that. So for example, knowing that you need a good sales operation and a good lead generation capability where that person fits in that kind of jigsaw puzzle. So that kind of end-to-end -end governance is, is working well as well. So the organizations that, that do it really well, I think, and we'll come on to this in a second, have what I would describe as a growth mindset. And this is where um, they know that when things don't go according to plan, if they lose deals, if a project doesn't go well, if a marketing campaign, lead generation campaign doesn't work out well, rather than scrapping it and brushing it under the carpet, they drag it out into the sunlight and say, what happened? What could we do better next time? And where could we just make those marginal improvements to the organization that are going to mm. add up to a much bigger difference? Why don't we talk about that? Because I know you put a lot of that learning into your book, Deal Crash. Mm. And be before we, we open up the covers, there was something that went through my head when you talked about from a pre-sales perspective, working with sales on deal reviews, how do you avoid, no, that's a question. How do, how is it experienced by a sales leader having somebody from pre-sales come in and mm -hmm. assess, review, do the moratorium, the post-mortem, mm -hmm. I should say, on, on deal. Yeah. What's that like for them? That's a really, that's a, a really astute question because I think it needs building up that level of trust first. Working closely with sales leaders, they knew who I am and where I was coming from. So it already built up a certain amount of trust. They also knew that I had the facilitation skills that are required to tease out from their team all of the aspects of the deal. Even the quiet people who was normally sitting in the corner and not really speak up, trying to get them to share their experiences as well. So it was really through that gradual building up of trust, because I guess like anything around coaching, around facilitation, that type of thing, you can't really begin that until you have, you've built the relationships first that enable that to happen. So I would sit down with the sales leaders and talk about the intent, what we're trying to achieve, talk about how we firstly set this thing up and explain it so it's not seen as a scapegoating exercise yeah. and it's genuinely seen as a let's just learn from this we succeed as a team we fail as a team let's learn from what happened here and then feed that back in and when you begin the process honestly people see that's your intent mm. and that you're not looking to point fingers at anybody but, okay so that's the enrollment bit and i'd like to unpack that a little bit more in a moment 
The other question I had for you was, you said that they see you as somebody with the facilitation skills. I'm guessing that doesn't have to be led by pre-sales. That could be sales, the leader themselves, right. if, if that was the individual with the skills. That, is that a fair? Yeah. yeah. Okay. It could be, it doesn't have to be led by that. It could be led by sales enablement functions within yeah. organizations. But one, one thing I do find is that there is a, a real shortage of good facilitation skills yeah. within and around sales organizations. And that's often a limiting factor and often where they need external help yeah. in order to do that. Because usually most of the stakeholders in a deal will have a very strong opinion about what they want to say about, about how a sales cycle is run. And therefore there's no natural facilitators amongst them. You really need somebody, A, that understands your business. And B, that has good facilitation skills and can just tease out the information they need about the deal rather than trying to be directive or impose their own opinion. I would imagine that the potential for a political conflict is so high that you really yeah. do want somebody from outside of the organization who is perceived as clean. I say clean. Yeah. They have, there's no alignment. There's no emotional attachment yes. to, yes. they only care about the diagnosing what went wrong and how do you root cause it and how do you fix it, right? Yeah. 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 So let's talk about that because when I got your book, the thing that, there was a couple of things that jumped out at me. Step one, and I will be straight with you, whenever I get a book, I'm going, oh, no. <laughs> right? <laughs> Only because, and you can see behind, I read a lot of books and yeah. most, <laughs> I, re I rarely get to the end of a book because most are saying the same thing. And, that's fine if it's done in a way that's really creative. So saying an old thing in a new way is absolutely fine. And it really comes down to the motive of the individual. I think sometimes people write books just so they can have author beside their name. It's a marketing exercise. It's really an expensive business card. Others, there are articles that are just puffed out so they can leave a shadow when they're on a table. But yours was genuinely different. And I was able to see that within a couple of pages. And the thing I loved most, and I'd like to come back to you, was the airline metaphor that runs throughout it. It just seems to work so well. When did you first, I know you said you were an airline fanatic or airplane fanatic from an early age. When did the penny drop for you that you were able to see um, in reviews? That's the same. Yeah, yeah. It, it was... I don't think there's a moment when the penny drops. I think it's like a lot of innovation. It's, it almost emerges out of adjacency. And what I mean about that, this is about creativity process in general, by the way, and how it manifests itself in me particularly. I was very interested in aviation and then aviation accidents because I was really fascinated by the fact that the aviation industry moved from this paradigm of pilot error, you know, because it's the guy at the pointy end made a mistake, flew it into a hill, whatever, his fault. And by calling it pilot error, you didn't have to make any expensive changes to the manufacturing process of airplanes, the processes of air traffic control, the on onboard procedures, because you'd scapegoated the guy who, who, who happened to have his hand on the wheel when he crashed. Mm. So the way that aviation really got moved down in the dark ages and moved into the safety ages to make it an absolutely the safest form of transport on the planet today, is they said, actually, let's go beyond that because people make mistakes and therefore we have to have systems in place to mitigate for those. So they never have it. So it's never one person. But also when you peel beneath all of these aviation accidents and they're complex, they've got complex causes, it's never one thing that causes it. It's usually a confluence of unfortunate circumstances. And if you can imagine then, park that, and there's me working away in IT and IT sales. And when we lose a big complex enterprise deal, I kept having the same thoughts. Although at the time, people were brushing things under the, under the carpet and they were looking for the smoking gun single cause of a deal going wrong. But I knew from my deal reviews, from my early deal reviews, we actually called them at the time, by the way, after action reviews, AARs, way, way back mm. in the 2000s. And I realized that this is a complex failure. So if you look around other industries and say, who are the best industry that analyze 
complex failure are able to implement the recommendations of complex failure, I thought it's been staring me in my face all of my life. It's the aviation industry. That's one of the safest. So, but, so what I started to do then was I'm going to crack open the manuals for the NTSB in the States, the National Transportation Safety Board, and the AAIB in the UK, the Air Accident Investigation Board. I'm going to say, what do these guys do that's clearly working for them that we don't? And that was the birth of the idea. It was that, that sudden realization that I was working in an industry that did handle complex failure very well, but I understood an industry that was at the pinnacle of understanding complex failure because it was life and death. How do you bridge, because sales isn't life and death, how do you bridge that mm. gap between, for example, if a pilot doesn't do their pre-takeoff checklist, yeah. they're in serious trouble. And that there's a language that they have to adhere to and they have somebody sitting beside them and then there's regular reviews, mm. somebody sitting in the jump seat, just watching them. We don't have that in sales. We have all of these complex processes. Sales enablement love to map this stuff out, as do companies like Sandler, et cetera. Yeah. But if I had a euro for any company that actually implemented it systema systemically, systematically, I'd be a very wealthy person. Sorry. Yeah. That's the inverse of what I wanted to say. You know what I'm saying? That is. <laughs> You're absolutely right, yeah. by the way. <laughs> yeah. It's, I just don't see the number of times where people will say, oh yeah, we have this methodology. And I say, okay, what are the seven, whatever numbers, what are they? Don't know. Never have. In 20 years I've been doing this. So that's to me is a, a serious flaw. How, how do you correct that? Because you can have the review afterwards. Yeah. But yeah. If it, it's like software. The cost yes. to fix a problem is upfront, is a lot less yeah. if you fix it there. So how do you resolve that? Or is that resolvable? It's absolutely resolvable. And that's the thing with all of these problems, they're absolutely resolvable. Because let's take an example. Sandler, I've worked with Sandler in the past. Now I work much more with methodologies like Medic or MedPick or one of the variations of that. And you're absolutely right that quite often I'm called in. And when I compare a sales cycle with a MedPick profile, for example, it becomes patently obvious where that they hadn't followed that, that really well. So the next question is, okay, so why? Then you start following breadcrumb trail of why. And often it might be with first line management. A lot of sales initiatives die at first line manager level because they are not enforcing or they're not reinforcing rather a methodology with their sales teams. And th there might be some good reasons for that. They might have maverick sales guys that do really well by ignoring everything at one end of the continuum. Yeah, but you don't have maverick pilots, even though one of, <laughs> yeah. even though one of them was called maverick, but there you go. <laughs> uh, but, but it's a law of averages, isn't it? What I do is I, I follow the trail of crumbs back to where things are being implemented. So I have, when I do a review, I have something called findings, implications, and recommendations reports. There's a kind of example copies in the book. Mm. And this is where I do it like a beam down, like an alien into a sales team and just record the findings. What am I seeing? And I may list 30, 40 things that I'm seeing happen that might be slightly odd or slightly anomalous with the sales cycle. Then when I've gathered those, I will then think, what's the implication of that finding? So let's say, if you say, well, actually, this organization uses MedPick. Let's start with M, the metrics. The metrics are missing. They don't add up. You have got, haven't proven the benefit of your, your solution at all in terms of metrics, in terms of ROI, TCO, or, or one of those measures. And then it's, so why? How did that slip through? Look at the sales governance of um, deal review, opportunity reviews, and all these things that are happening. The governance is there for them. How did that slip through there? And quite often, then that leads you to another great, another crumb of, it's because they're being treated as box ticking exercises. Salespeople really enjoy talking about what they know rather than what they don't know mm -hmm. about a deal. And so again, so... Out of just one or two simple findings, you come out with several items that affect governance and uh, the execution of sales deals that, are, that ultimately will turn into recommendations that people can apply. And quite often, they are, they are almost blatantly obvious when people see them read back to them. 
But when they're in the white heat of reviewing deals and execution, they don't see that these methodologies are falling down almost at the first hurdle. Yeah. There seems to me to be also, maybe it is a leadership skills gap in and at the rep level, because it's one thing to say, go get the metrics. It's another mm -hmm. thing to be able to have that conversation with a prospect in a certain way that because there's there, maybe they don't know the metrics themselves. Yeah. They don't have a sense of it. Or maybe if the relationship isn't quite right, I, maybe I don't want to share that information or I don't see the relevance of it. I'm just wondering at a human skill level, there may be many reasons why. Excuse me. <coughs> is that an area that you dive into or is it more of a, okay, here are the gaps. You go, mm -hmm. you, 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 here's my recommendations. You need to go yeah. and fix those gaps. Yeah. No, it's a great question. It's a little bit of both, as you'd imagine. Because yeah. complex failures about all of those things. It's about, there's a whole chapter I devote in the book about what I call human factors. And human factors can be anything from perception, misperception of, of not, not quite understanding what's happening in, in an opportunity. It can be ego getting in the way. Not that ego plays a big part in sales, of course. We all know that, but sometimes it might. There's fatigue. Stuff like that. You, people are least creative when they're fatigued. So people working on those bid documents, those RFPs until the early hours of the morning where they can't even read straight, never mind put an answer together for their solution. Again, there's a lot of human factors that we just don't take into account properly when we're analyzing complex failure. And I've, very, I've, I've closely used the analogy with, with aviation because they understand uh, at a great level of detail, the impact that human factors have on aviation accidents. If you look at any of the, any of the old accidents from the seventies and eighties, you'll see all of these human factors coming into play. Something as well, uh, the aviation industry has learned something called CRM. I'm not talking about our CRM, customer relationship management. I'm talking about crew resource management. And that is how do the crew on board interact with each other? Is there a natural hierarchy that's preventing people lower down speaking out? Wasn't that one of the quite reasons behind those Malcolm Gladwell's book on outliers? And yeah. he talked about that. I think it was Korean airlines. There was a, that it was a cultural issue that the co-pilot could never challenge yeah. the decisions of the pilot. Yes, yes, exactly that. And you find many examples, especially again, in, in maybe the seventies and eighties, when that was a big issue, the hierarchy on board dare challenge a captain. If you were a, a humble engineer or a first officer, it just wasn't the dumb thing. But now they very much encourage and almost, almost enforce through practice, deliberate practice, mm. this working as a team, everybody has a say, everybody has a contribution. If something doesn't look right, even if. You're one of the cabin crew that happens to look out of the window and see something odd happening on the wing or with an engine to be able to raise that without any thought that, you know, that you were breaking hierarchy or upsetting anybody. In the companies you've worked with where you're implementing a formal structured deal crash review, have you seen any companies apply real sanctions to not following process? That's a really difficult one because you don't want to you don't want to turn this into a wrist slapping exercise again, mm. or hunting down people doing things incorrectly. I think ultimately there are sanctions and we, we know in our business, the, there's ultimate sanctions for not getting your quota or not getting deals properly. I really approach these exercises in more of the spirit of everybody understanding why they should be doing it. So I really amplify the, the attraction motivators mm. to using this methodology rather than the aversion motivators, what might happen if you don't, yeah. because who doesn't want to close more de deals of a higher price with a lower, with a shorter sales cycle, who doesn't want to do that? Yeah. And if you buy into the aggregation of marginal gains that you can achieve from analyzing failures, just like sports people, a sports person, it wouldn't even be a question for them as to whether they analyze their, the races that they lose. And I'm going to go up on a little tangent here because one of the things that people often say to me is, shouldn't you be analyzing the successful deals? To, shouldn't you be focusing on the successful deals, not the deals you're losing? And my answer to that is always, well, when you win a deal, 
or when a, a, an athlete wins their competition, it's because everything they plan to do worked out as they planned to do it. So great, analyze that today. But if everything you plan to do worked, you want a deal or you want a race, fantastic. You're running a great organization. Analyze the hell out of that. But what people don't do is what elite athletes do, and that is go back and say, what went wrong here? How do we win next time? How do we prevent the same thing from happening? Here was something I saw once at a company, and I was curious to know what, you're, what you would do with this. Because I always thought it was a strange thing. They were showing me their, again, it was their post-mortem database. And mm -hmm. the, what they had was the number one reason that they had why they lost deals was relationship. And mm -hmm. I asked them, what was the number one reason why they won? Relationship. Where do you start with something like that? That's interesting because for me, that comes into the category of with a fixed mindset organization, it's looking for the smoking gun. Uh, let's say the smoking gun is the relationship. So again, firstly, okay, that may be a contributing reason. Almost certainly is a contributing reason. So that one statement probably boils down into many strands. Mm. For example, did they really identify a champion or did they just grab the first coach they found? and call the coach a champion. Mm -hmm. So they really don't have anybody that's in the, in, inside the customer selling when they're not in the room. Yeah. If I have got a champion, who is it? Do you know like, like the Jim Holden concept of power-based selling, the fox? Yeah, I know of Holden, but you'll have to, for listeners who are not familiar with Yes. Give them a... So the fox is it's the individual in an organization whose influence belies their hierarchical position. So they're very respected. They may have been there for many years. They have big influence. People listen to them. And internally within that organization, they will know that whoever the fox is favoring will probably win the deal. So very few people hunt down that fox and try and recruit them as their champion. If you can do that, with fox as your champion, you will probably win the deal. And therefore, it will be, it will be maybe a relationship-led thing. However, and this is what I do with the deal crash, is that, okay, so that's a factor. Record that, get the findings, implications, and the recommendation of the relationship side, but can guarantee that as you talk more about the deal, as you analyze it further, it's maybe one in 10 issues. Did everything else go perfectly other than this one relationship issue? And the answer is always no. So what else can we look at? And you usually have, again, typically I'll have 15 or 20 findings with their own implications and their own recommendations associated with it. Okay. Here's one for you. As you were talking about the fox, just something popped into my head. If you're proactively going after an account, a new logo, it makes sense. You're looking for somebody who has a particular pain, who has the influence, has the personality to drive that. It's like the challenger buyer type persona. Yeah, yeah. However, if you are an organization that predominantly wins business through proposals, and I know there's, that's a spectrum, right? Yeah. But what I wanted to ask is, do, have you noticed a difference when doing deal crash reviews between those who proactively go and hunt versus those who because of brand or their product, whatever, work, work more the RFP proposal route. Yeah, yeah. There's a, few, there's a few aspects about that. With that type of deal, they tend to be more on the volume rather than value side of the equation, I, I tend to find. That with more complex business to business, you, where there's a high level of novelty and uniqueness, that's the domain where a deal crash type of approach will kind of work best. However, where you get this emphasis on written responses and deals like, and areas like that, what I tend to find is that organizations have set up almost like uh, central organizations that will crack the handle and reel out these responses. The software you can buy as well to kind of automatically does that matching of questions and response as you're probably aware of. Now, you can do a version of deal crash against those smaller organizations, those smaller issues, mm. those deals that you really must, or maybe it's an industry or a particular product that you want to focus on and set your thresholds there. And what I typically find with those, with those areas are there's a basic value proposition issue with what people are putting forward. 
with those types of deals, you still got an opportunity, almost certainly, to put together an executive summary of some kind, some sort of free format narrative to support your submission. And that's your one opportunity that you get to, to press home your value proposition. And I almost always find it's either missing or you'll know from the book that I described four engines mm. of a value proposition. Mm. And it's usually firing on only maybe three or two engines. Now, play can fly on three or two engines, but not at great altitude and not at great altitude. haven't seen that, remind me, because I know there was the why, the what. What were the other two? Yes. Then? Yeah. The four engines are the why should the organization yeah. act, the kind of Simon Sinek type of why. Mm. What are they about? There is the what difference is your solution going to make to their business? How are you going to do that? What's the, what's the overall solution look like? And finally, where have you done it before? What proof can you offer that you're able to deliver as you describe? So they're the four engines. And if one of them isn't firing quite, quite right, you've got a weaker value proposition. And the way I put it, you've probably seen this analogy again with the flight plan analogy. If you can't get the altitude because you haven't got a strong enough value proposition, you end up flying through clouds. And we know when you fly through clouds, your plane hits some, hits some cubulus or, or cubionimbus. It's a very rough ride and it extends your journey. It elongates your sales cycle time. And also, you, the lower you fly, competition can just shoot you down. The analogy sounds true as well. You get a weak value proposition, then your deal is in higher jeopardy for all of those reasons. Yeah. So even with those smaller deal deals, one of the first things I look at is where's the value proposition and are all four engines of that firing? Yeah. The question I was asking as well about the organizations who hunt versus who may rely more on proposal or getting an RFP. I guess the starting point for if you're doing a deal crash review on those RFP heavy organizations would be how did you get the RFP? Yeah. I would imagine that that's, that's where the problems are. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. We all know if the first time you hear about a deal is the RFP, the chances are nine times out of 10, you're not going to win that deal. We all know that. So you have to be influencing the beforehand. And a couple of aspects there, people sometimes miss that those early signs, those early chances to influence relationships in the RFP before a yeah. process breaks out. Because as soon as a process breaks out, you're really locked out of that to yeah. large part. Yeah. So people haven't taken those opportunities to, to influence the deal early. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the bravery to qualify out of that deal, especially if when they read through an RFP, it's quite clearly loaded against their business or loaded in favor of one of your competitors. Yeah. And it's the bravery. And quite often, and again, it's a, it's a sales strategy that, that you all know well, Paul, by qualifying out, it's sometimes the most powerful thing mm -hmm the most powerful lever you can pull in an opportunity saying is blowing the whistle and calling foul and saying, we're not going to give legitimacy to this selection process by gracing you with our presence. Yeah. Because it's wired for us to lose, but you'll have the legitimacy of us taking part. A few more questions about the book, if I may. Sure. What aspect of writing the book did you enjoy the most? I actually enjoyed the parallels the most. I put a few use cases in there or a few cases of where you can take direct lessons from air accidents and, and apply them to, to the sales process. So I really enjoyed doing that mapping because it was quite illuminating. And I learned some things that I hadn't realized were happening within the sales process. So that was a part because it was, it was ticking all of my, more of my boxes. And I also liked doing some of the actual examples that I put in some of the real world examples that although that fictitious, they're kind of, they're, they're pretty much based on you know, semi-autobiographical, an, an amalgamation of dream events yeah. that I'd actually seen happening. Yeah. They're not technically true, but they're about a truth that people will recognize. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. A few things glued together. But I think the reason why, looking at the bigger picture, the reason why the analogy I think works well is that when I see other processes for win-loss analysis, and there are some out there, they're very dry, they're very process-based, they have their own methodologies. Mm. But because we're dealing with organizations where the people tend to have a short attention span, I find having a, a, an analogy that brings things to life a little bit more yeah. is a much more engaging way of looking at 100%. it than just giving them a new methodology or a yeah. new set of acronyms or processes yeah. that they... Well, I can tell you from a reader's perspective, that was a big deal. 
because they're mm. giving, there's a common language there already. You're just extending the meaning of it or you're looking at the meaning in a different context when you're going to go, oh yeah, that makes sense. So you're doing the work for the reader a lot by using analogies that make sense to them. And it's yeah. just so much of the metaphor works that you can use. Using the black box, you talked about black box and airlines yeah. have that. Which is cool. The thing about black boxes is they're very objective. It's not, there's no he said, she said. It's purely objective. It's the data and no more. In terms of some of the sales tech tools, call intelligence software, et cetera, mm -hmm. where do you see the black box metaphor being supported with some of those tech schools? What's working to make that black box analogy work really well? Yeah, yeah. Again, re really good question. The first thing that I'll say about black boxes is if you see an aeroplane, there's two things, two things you need to know about black boxes. First, they're not black, right? They're orange because they're the things you're going to pull out of the wreckage. <laughs> the second thing is, the, the second thing is that there's two of them, right? There's uh, in aviation, there's the flight data recorder and there's the cockpit voice recorder. And they marry those two things together to come to some really interesting conclusions about root cause and that type of thing. So. The analogy we sales, we sales deals is that we, again, we have two black boxes. We have what I call the sales, the organizational black box, where you've got your own data, just exactly as you said about the data that accompanied the sales cycle that's generated internally within an organization. And they're the presentations, the demos, the deal reviews, the closed plans, all of those types of things. So that's what I call the kind of, that, that's one of the black boxes that we want to crack open. And the other one is the voice of the customer. That's the other black box. How did this look from the customer's perspective? And that's, I try and get both. Sometimes you can't get at the customer the black box data because of maybe the uh, a fracture in relationship with the customer, for example. But often you can, and I try and get both. And go back to what I was saying earlier, it's really important when you're looking at findings to not jump to conclusions too early, not to get, not to get prematurely physical with your fight, with your implications and recommendations. Just look at the findings in the cold light to light of day, like you've just been beamed down into from your alien spaceship into this organization. And what are you seeing? And only when you've gathered as many as you can, you start putting together some hypotheses mm. about what that may have meant to, to the sales cycle. So we try and resist that as quickly as possible. So to be objective, as you said, to be as, as objective as possible with that data that you're finding about your sales deal, including those assets that you mentioned. The customer one intrigues me because, they're, sorry, they're not a customer actually, technically. Uh, mm. The, because I would imagine that it's much easier for a lost potential customer to speak to and be honest with a third party independent mm -hmm. broker is the wrong word, but yeah. reviewer, consultant, mm -hmm. analyst, because yeah. if the relationship has been strained somewhat, they're not going to be a hundred percent honest, it's, right? Yeah. Or maybe they don't feel like they can be honest because they don't want, they don't want to hurt the feelings of the individual. They don't want to say, you know what? And this is the other thing I would curious to know where you, what your experience is of this is you can do everything well. You can do all of the close plans, propositions, everything. And they can say, do you know what? I just didn't like the salesperson. Yeah. And that's, I had this myself where my wife and I were buying blinds and on the weekend for a house and I didn't like the salesperson. I just felt they were overselling. And, but the thing is we still bought the blinds. Why? My wife wanted them. And so there's those and uh, there's those imperfections. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering, how do you deal with those? How do you deal with the subjective, particularly the subjective voice of the customer? Yeah, yeah. Really though, I'm going to back into this question because I want to say how not to do it. And I feel like I'm very passionate about this and I feel like I need to get this out first of all. What normally happens when there's deal loss is that the lead salesperson, the account manager, will get the email that tells them they lost the deal. That may accompany information about we're going to do a debriefing or we're offering you a debriefing. And so many times that I've seen the salesperson go to the debriefing and then come back and tell their line manager or the VP of sales why they lost the deal, which is literally the equivalent of allowing the pilot to rake amongst the wreckage in a crash plane, grab the black box, 
take it home, download it, and then come back in and give all the reasons why yeah. why the plane crashed. You would never do that. You would never, ever do that. So why would you do it with sales? So what I urge people to do is take your emotion out of it, first of all. At the very least, raise it up to the level of management that have not been directly involved in the deal on a day-to-day basis. Better still, use a reciprocal arrangement with another department or another group where they will go and do that deal loss analysis for you with the customer. So you've removed it completely from anybody who's involved in the deal. And and obviously, I think you've spotted the best option is maybe to use a third party like somebody like myself who can go and interview the customer. The second thing I would say is listening skills are really important. I have put an interview guide into the book, but it's not there to be followed verbatim. It's there as a guide for the scope, maybe, of the discussion and some of the opening questions. But listening skills when you're with a customer doing that sort of review are critical. Don't get defensive, first of all. That will completely wreck the exercise. Darren, when your time on this planet is done, how would you like people to remember you? (laughs) That's a big question. I think that I would like to think that I've made a little ding, a little dent in, in the way that we sell enterprise deals and uh, how, we, uh, how we really evolve into having this kind of growth mind that so many other industries are, are ahead of us in and causes me so much frustration in, in, in what I do and when I work with organizations. But I guess it's that frustration that has caused this initiative and the whole idea of deal crash to happen. So if I make a little dint or a ding in the side of the, of the enterprise sales industry, mm. that, is, that is good for me. And I just hope that the kind of organizations evolve a little bit, a little yeah. bit faster because of this. That's interesting how you frame that because deal crash review is, comes at the end of a process after you've lost a deal. But how you framed it is, I guess that's the value. Is it's really, it's not really about the deal review. It's about how do we improve it on the front end so that yeah. we win more. It, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I can imagine they can be framed as what went wrong rather than what do we need to do. Exactly, exactly. There's a very high ROI for deal crash investigation. Uh, the advantage is it's a very short time to value because yeah. you can apply that learning to in-flight deals. Yeah. Not changing wholesale your methodology of selling. You're tuning and honing it so that you make the absolute best use of the resources in your organization. There's so much wasted resource around. When we, when we talk about that, that close rate and the pipeline coverage, there's so much resource expended on lost deals that it's almost criminal not to investigate how, why they were lost and feed those lessons back in yep. to the sales cycle. Magic. Darren Mason, author of Deal Crash, it's the sales growth mindset. And to me, that's the most important word there, mindset. Sales strategy for transforming your win rate. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. And thank you, Paul.